especially re-listening to it now and, and being able to take into account where Pearl Jam is, has gone since. There's an urgency I like because you can tell it's the band fighting for a sound that might help them last a little bit longer. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast, presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. It is Vitalogyology, Part 5, talking about the fifth Pearl Jam record, 1998's Yield. If you haven't been listening, and if you haven't been listening yet, I don't know why you'd be listening to this episode, but let's just say you've dropped in and you don't know what's going on, this month we're going through Pearl Jam's catalog. Going through all the records, devoting basically an episode per record. You know, some of the later records we're going to kind of cram into like one episode just for the sake of... I, you know, I don't want to Pearl Jam you guys to death. But, you know, we're going through the, through the band's history. And uh, we're doing this because Pearl Jam is being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, I know for me personally, this is a band that I have lived with for much of my life. So there's a lot to discuss, I feel like, with this band. I feel like I've been thinking about Pearl Jam from the time I was, what, 13 or so. So I've been bringing in people to break down the records, to talk about Pearl Jam's history, and to, to kind of figure out like how they went from this band that was so humongous in the early 90s one of the biggest alt-rock bands of its era. How they went from that to where they are now, this legacy band that can, play, that can fill stadiums and can basically do whatever it wants. It's, an, it's a pretty incredible arc. And it's an arc that a lot of bands did not survive. Um, but Pearl Jam did, more or less intact. Um, so we're trying to figure out how that happened while also revisiting a lot of records and figuring out if they hold out or not. Um, today we're talking about Yield, the fifth record. And for me, you know, with, with Yield, the conversation, I think, begins with a question, and that is, does Yield signal the end of an era or the beginning of an era? You know, I, I mean, really, I think the answer is probably both. But, you know, in one regard... Yield is the end of an era for Pearl Jam it, because it is the last Pearl Jam record to go platinum. And I think it's fair to say that this is the last Pearl Jam record that really had an impact on sort of the mainstream of pop culture. Maybe you could make an argument that Backspacer, the 2009 record, had an impact, you know, because that, that record went to number one and Pearl Jam sort of did a lot of like promotions at that time. They seemed to have a higher profile maybe at that time than they did. Um, but, you know, I, I would still say that Yield kind of signals the end of a, of a period in Pearl Jam's history where when they could, you know, be classified as a certain kind of rock band, a, a rock band that where the records are 
having a really big impact on the culture where they're putting out songs that are on the radio that people know. Um, you know, when they're that kind of band, when they're competing in that kind of way, Yield is in, uh, I think say, I think it's safe to say that Yield is the end of that. So there's that. That's the ending part. The beginning part that Yield represents is that I, I think if you look at Pearl Jam at this time, you know, the, the Pearl Jam of Yield, this is the band that most, you know, this band resembles how Pearl Jam looks today. You know, like the first four episodes of the series, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of the evolution of Pearl Jam and how when, when Pearl Jam put out 10, they were this young band, you know, that hadn't been together very long. And Pearl Jam had the fortune or the misfortune, however you want to look at it, of having to grow up uh, in front of millions of people. You know, they, they had to go through their growing pains under the spotlight. Um... And it took them a while to sort of figure out, you know, what kind of band are we? Like, what is our identity? You know, Eddie Vedder came into the band when they were fairly fully formed already, you know, musically with Stone Gosser, Jeff Amitt, Mike McCready, that core that, you know, really kind of defines the sound of 10. They were in place. And then Vedder comes in and he kind of gradually takes control of the band away from those guys. And, you know, on Vitalogy and, and No Code, Pearl Jam kind of evolved into this, like, somewhat punk rock, somewhat classic rock band uh, that was making these records that were very much on the fly. You know, on one hand, you know, the songwriting is very sharp, you know, producing, you know, those sort of classic kind of Pearl Jam anthems, you know, Corduroy, Better Man, uh, you have, like, Hail Hail on No Code. Um, but you know, just the way those records were made was, you know, very on the fly. And you could feel Eddie Eddie Vedder trying to grasp at something. Uh, I think at times on those records, you can hear Eddie Vedder wanting Pearl Jam to be the kind of band that it wasn't. Maybe to be a little bit more of a punk band than they really were. And, you know, that created a lot of instability in Pearl Jam. There was a lot of dysfunction, a lot of lack of communication. You know, there was a lot of a lot of points in Pearl Jam where they could have folded. I think during the making of No Code, uh, you know, that could have been the last Pearl Jam record. <laughs> you know, if, if Jeff Amitt had really quit the band and he decided he could not go back, you know, does Pearl Jam replace him with somebody else? I mean, it's kind of inconceivable to think that. So Pearl Jam survives all of that stuff and they, and they get to yield. And there's a lot of things that happened at this time that were crucial in sort of bringing about stability in Pearl Jam world, you know, bringing about sort of the things that would guide them forward for the next couple of decades. Um, you know, probably the first thing you have to talk about in this era is the addition of Matt Cameron on drums. And, you know, it's, it's always weird for me to talk about Matt Cameron as the drummer of Pearl Jam, even to this day, because I always think of him as the Soundgarden drummer. You know, he's always going to be the Soundgarden guy in my mind. Um, but, you know, he has been the Pearl Jam, you know, he's been the drummer for Pearl Jam for, you know, the longest by far. Um, and he brought his steadiness to the band. 
um, that I think you know has obviously played out in a positive way moving forward. And, you know, before him, I believe there were four drummers. You had Dave Crewson, you had Matt Chamberlain for a brief spell, you had the late, well not the late, he's still alive, thank goodness, but the great Dave A, a favorite here of the Vitalogyology uh, series. And then you had Jack Irons, who uh, had who helped bring Eddie Vedder into the band. And then they hire Matt Cameron. Matt Cameron, who had been involved, of course, on that initial demo that Pearl Jam recorded, that Eddie Vedder got, and then you know he auditioned and became a member of the band. So Matt Cameron was sort of there at the beginning, but then he's brought on because Jack Irons quits the band. He uh, essentially has... You know, I don't want to misdiagnose this. He essentially has something of a nervous breakdown and can't tour. So they bring in Matt Cameron just as a replacement, kind of a temporary guy, until they can find someone more permanent. But Matt Cameron ends up sticking in the band. So now they have a regular drummer. The other big thing that happened around the time of Yield is that Pearl Jam became a band that you could see live uh, without having to try too hard. <laughs> like in 98, they did a big tour, and they did a big arena tour. I, the whole fight with t- Ticketmaster was essentially conceded. And, uh, you know, they conceded that, you know, that this is the way the world is and that they were going to have to play Ticketmaster venues if they were going to be the kind of rock band that Pearl Jam needs to be. So, you know, they're, they're doing arena tour. You know, they did a big arena tour that year. I know that was the first time that I, like, that I ever saw Pearl Jam. You know, in spite of being a band, you know, in spite of being a fan of Pearl Jam since the early 90s, you know, it wasn't until the Yield Tour in 98 that I, you know, that I had a chance to see them. Um, and then I think that's true for a lot of people. Uh, some of my later guests in this series actually talk about how... They didn't really get to see Pearl Jam on a regular basis until this time. I have a guest coming up in one of my later episodes who has seen Pearl Jam 150 times, you know, but she didn't get to see them a lot until until '98. And you know, when we think about Pearl Jam now, I think the thing that immediately comes to mind for people is that Pearl Jam is a touring band. That more often than not, you know, most years, you know, Pearl Jam will be on the road. And that they will probably be in your area. You know, you might have to drive a couple hours, but you you will have a chance to see Pearl Jam. And you know that it will be great. And, you know, I think that reputation for Pearl Jam, I I mean, they were always known as a great band, a great live band, you know, even in the early 90s. But as a band that like, as sort of like a people's band, a band that you could go see a lot that started around now. And of course, that really became a thing kind of going into that sort of binaural era when they started releasing all those bootleg recordings. Um, but Yield is the beginning, I think, of Pearl Jam establishing a reputation for being the sort of go-to live band of its generation. Um, and, you know, that ethos it's in keeping with the record itself because you know yield um you know people use this word and it's sort of a backhanded compliment but i i mean it as a compliment yield is a very professional sounding record you know it 
unlike Vitalogy and No Code, which I think are deliberately sort of not amateurish, but certainly sort of unfinished in a way, you know, unpolished. You know, Yield is a song, you know, the the, the, the guys in the band, they, they brought more or less finished songs into the studio and they presented them to the rest of the band. And the band worked them up and they recorded them well. They presented them in a more or less straightforward fashion. And it resulted in this record that is really, I think, it's certainly the most band-oriented record that they made since Versus, you know, because, you know, Eddie Vedder decided to cede a lot of the control that he had seized on the previous two records, I think, to the to the good of the band. You know, the band members talk about the making of Yield being a very positive experience, certainly much more positive than the previous two records. Um, but, you know, it, it just sounds, it's just a really good mainstream rock record, you know? Like, uh, well-written songs, well-played, well-sung. Um, you know, it really delivers in that regard. I mean, it, to me, this is the record that, in a way, it benefits the most from revisionist history because I feel like when it came out, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm for it still. You know, Given to Fly was a great lead-off single. It sounded like a classic Pearl Jam song, if that's something that you were looking for. Uh, you know, Pearl Jam made a video for the first time in several years for the song Do the Evolution. Uh, and that, I think for a lot of people, is the best music video that Pearl Jam ever made. I think I would still campaign for Jeremy, as overplayed as that video is. I mean, just how iconic and how important to the band's career that was. That's it, hard to deny that. Um, yeah, so Pearl Jam was doing a lot of the things that they had not done in the previous years. But, you know kind of continuing the conversation that we started in the last podcast about sort of the music scene in 96, you know, by 98, you know, most of the sort of leading lights of alternative rock were, were now gone, you know, like Soundgarden broke up, you know, Alice in Chains was still together, but Lane Staley was in seclusion or about to enter seclusion. You know, he, he was in a death spiral already at that point. Um, so Pearl Jam was, was kind of the last band standing, and I think the sense at the time was that maybe Pearl Jam, you know, was a little passe, <laughs> you know, that they existed back in sort of the early 90s, you know, that's when they were relevant, but now it's the late 90s, and it's about rap rock, it's about teen pop, you know, the Backstreet Boys, and Sync and Britney Spears, and Pearl Jam was sort of a band out of time in 1998. But looking back, you know, listening to the record now, I think Yield really stands up as like a very strong Pearl Jam record. Uh, so that's, I think, an interesting thing to explore, sort of how this record has, the perception of this record has changed over time. I think this record is remembered much better now than maybe it was received in the late 90s. That's my perception anyway. You know, maybe if you go on Metacritic, the reviews were actually pretty good, but my my perception is that the you know that people weren't loving Pearl Jam maybe as much in 1998, uh, maybe not as much as maybe this record deserved. Um, so let's get into this record. My guest in this episode is um, this guy named Hanif Willis Abdurraqib, and uh, he's one of my favorite critics right now. Uh, he's also a poet, so he's a multifaceted person, <laughs> you know. He's not just a music critic. He's also a poet. He's a good writer. 
he has a lot of thoughts about Pearl Jam, and I had a really good conversation with him. So here is me and Hanif Willis Abdurraqib talking about Yield. Hanif, you know, you and I, we talked over email a little bit about sort of our respective Pearl Jam fan arcs. And it sounds like you and I are around the same age. Are you in your mid-30s? Uh, early 30s. Early yeah. 30s. Okay. So because yeah. if I recall, you were talking about how I think like a lot of people in the 90s, you were really into Pearl Jam early 90s, like first three albums, 10 through Vitology. And then after that, you sort of fell off a little bit. I mean, does, does that about sum it up? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, a, a big thing is I, I don't know, um, maybe a shameful thing is that I think as the band got better, I got less interested, you know what I mean? Like, I think revisiting um, the albums after those first three albums is really where they start to find their voice um, and figure out the kind of band they were capable of being. Uh, and I think that's where I, that's where, that's where I got off the train, unfortunately. You know, and... It's interesting you say that because I I feel like I've had a similar experience like revisiting those records later because you know for me like I was on the Pearl Jam train up through No Code like unequivocally like I would buy albums the day they came out every album was an event and um I bought Yield when it came out and I listened to it but it wasn't as big of a deal to me and then after that I lost interest like do you remember back then like what was it for you that kind of sparked the decline you know was it just the fact that they weren't that zeitgeisty band anymore or do you remember like what your feelings were at the time yeah you know a weird thing about pearl jam is i think that they were um lumped into the grunge genre uh and they maybe didn't entirely at least for me represent um represent grunge in a way that I understood and liked it you know i, I think due to proximity uh, like both geographical and you know, the festivals they play and the acts they would play with. I think they were kind of um, a grunge band in in name only. Right. Um, maybe those early albums had some of the sludgier feel, um, you know, the heavier, sludgier feel that the grunge albums had. But, I mean, lyrically, I don't think that they were um, entirely on par with the rest of the genre. And so, and so I think... Um, I could fake that early on, you know, Pearl Jam, especially because I was, I was young when they were, um, when they were running through those first three albums and those albums would always get paired with other grunge albums that I'd enjoyed and heard people listening to. And so I think I was able to fake the, uh, um, the idea that they were a type of band that they were actually not, you know? Um, and I, and I think that really, at least for me, um, started to shift, um, kind of around no code. Um, which felt like um, a kind of a, a pop album, not, a, not entirely a pop album, but but it felt like they were um, trying to reestablish themselves as something that they weren't, you know, uh, because because the album before it was so massive, uh, because Vitalogy was so massive, uh, it felt like they were like doing that thing where a band has an album that goes unexpectedly bigger than they thought it would. And then they try to like reclaim their roots with something different. Um, and so I think I got off the wagon around no code right? because of that. It was just harder for me to enter. Now, like, when you were a teenager listening to Pearl Jam, like, was there a particular album that was sort of like the apotheosis of Pearl Jam? Like, Oh, I like this is the perfect distillation of who I think they are. And I wish it just sounded like this. Like, was it 10 or versus? Uh, or... 10. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. 10. I mean, 10, uh, 
I think even now, you know, uh, 10 is kind of untouchable. I don't know if there's a better run of songs than like opening, like from once to maybe oceans, you know, uh, that's like all of those songs are impossibly good. Um, The whole album is good, but I think those first seven tracks are just like, you know, you're kind of just pulled in and and it it doesn't stop. And I think, um, you know, I think a problem with Pearl Jam that, that started to happen for me um, that, that didn't happen on 10 was that the album started to feel a little too bloated. Um, the albums maybe either had too many songs or, um, songs that were too long, you know what I mean? Like, um, songs that didn't, <laughs> that felt like they didn't fit what the band was doing. They would do this weird thing, I think, uh, on some of their albums where they would like, it felt like maybe this isn't something they planned, but it would feel like they would split the album in half with like, heavier songs and then some clunky ballads, you know? <laughs> right. So you weren't into the ballads with Pearl Jam. You came for the rock. Yeah, I think I came for the heavier stuff. I, I don't particularly think, um, you know, I don't particularly think that, and I know a lot of people may disagree with this, but I don't think Eddie Vedder is a, a particularly good ballad singer. Um, you know, I, I think that he comes, uh, I think his voice is, is suited for it, but I don't think, um, that it translates well on Pearl Jam records. You know, it's like, uh, he's not like Scott Stapp ballad singer. You know what I mean? Like he has the, <laughs> he has the ability to pull off a ballad, but it just oftentimes feels so tedious, uh, and not comfortable. And, and I think, um, you know, that's present on those, on those albums. So Yield comes out in 1998. And as you say, it comes after No Code, which at that point, it was the worst selling Pearl Jam record up to that point. I I think it went platinum, but just barely. And Yield comes out, and in the press, it's sort of described as this return to roots rock record. You know, know, No Code was kind of more experimental. As you say, there's like more ballads on it, you know, acoustic tracks. Yield is, in comparison, more kind of a straightforward down-the-line rock record. You have a single like Given Given to Fly, which kind of seems to emulate the early kind of anthems that were on 10 and this album ends up outselling no code it goes platinum but it's the last pearl jam album to go platinum and in retrospect it kind of seems like the end of an era for the band as far as being like a mainstream big time rock band um like for you, you 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 were talking about how you were kind of wavering around the time of no code did you buy yield when it came out I didn't buy it, but I, I stole it, not from a store, but from a friend. Um, a friend had it. I mean, I wasn't a major, you know, I was a, I was still a teenager. I wasn't um, a major purchaser of rock music. Most of my rock music um, came secondhand from, from you know, friends. I, I think because of, I grew up in, like, a very black neighborhood with, with mostly black friends, and so... Um, you know, most of my purchases had to sit in line with like, I'm buying this rap record, you know, or I'm buying. <laughs> so I, a lot of my, um, I had to keep up those appearances, but I would, uh, my oldest brother would buy a lot of rock records. Um, and I had friends at school that, that would buy rock records. And so, um, I stole a, I stole a CD for, from Yield. I stole the CD version of Yield from a friend at school. Um, and I really, um, I remember at the time, uh, before you continue does your friend know that you jacked his cd or like are we making a confession on this podcast (laughs) i think this is a confession i hope he's not listening (laughs) i think the statute Uh of limitations has run out on stolen cds at this point so you're you're okay 
brand new at the time too. It was like the week it came out. Um, oh wow! That was when you know record albums were coming out on two, every Tuesday. You know, so I think I stole it on like a Thursday. Um, <laughs> and at that point in my listening, I would. Um, I think I'm a much different album listener now. At that point, I would always skip to the single first for some reason, even though I'd heard the singles already. So, you know, I skipped straight to, like, I think Given a Fly is, like, the fourth track. I skipped straight to the fourth track and, like, you know, wore that out before um, backtracking. I I think um, a a great thing that I like about Yield is that it's kind of uh, the way they're positioned on the album. Um, You know, it it felt like... um, they tried it, you know, like I, like I think I was saying before, they tried an experiment and it failed. And they wanted to return to the straightforward sound, but also it's just mature, right? I think that like the themes on the album are a lot more driven by, at least to me, what feels like Eddie Vedder growing up, like being an adult, you know what I mean? And coming to terms with just not even being super old, but just like growing old, right? And coming out of that scene, I think, where... um you know, there there were some behaviors that were a little more self-destructive than, than others. Um, and writing about that in a way that was really great. Um, and, and I mean, there's some, there's some definite, there's some definite low points on the album, right? Like I think like, you know, push me, pull me is definitely not my favorite right. jam. And all those yesterdays is like 50,000 minutes long. Um, right. But, but I, I, I do think that like, if I am to hold up, Pearl Jam's records, I think I would, I, you know, the ones that I would listen to now as far as how they've aged, I think 10 and then, and then this one. Now, did you feel that way at the time? Like, like when you stole that from your friend and you got it home and you went to the single and then you listened to the rest of the record, like how did you feel like in 1998 when you heard it? I didn't like it. I thought all of the songs were significantly worse than the two songs I'd heard, right? <laughs> I had, um, by that time, I had heard Given a Fly and Wishlist. Um and, and Wishlist isn't even, I don't think, that great, you know, but, um, I mean, Given the Fly is. I think Given the Fly is a great single. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I thought the album was, was pretty bad, but I also, um, I, I think the thing that happens when a band puts out an album that flops uh, and then follows up with something better is, is that um, Distance will always do wonders for that second album, right? Right. Um so, you know, I think for a lot of people, even though Yield got good reviews, I, I know a lot of people at the time that were just not into it because it still had the stink of, of the album before, you know? Right. And it's hard to, um, it is hard to separate those things. Um, well, it's interesting because, like, like, no code now, you know, you mentioned it being kind of a relative flop. I mean, now that it's been elevated to one of the favorite albums of, like, hardcore Pearl Jam fans. So that's kind of happened with no code too, but I think you're right with yield that at the time, I think there was a feeling where, you know, sometimes there's artists who are really major and everything that they do seems significant and then they start to fade a little bit and there becomes a perception that of almost like desperation maybe or or of of sort of like you can feel the sort of weakening of powers happen. Like I remember I saw Pearl Jam on this tour, on the Yield tour, and you know, they were great as they always are, but I think at the time there was a sense that this band is starting to fade away and that there may even be a future, you know, a not too distant future where this band is starting to play casinos and county fairs, you know, kind of going the path that a lot of nineties alt rock bands went. And, um, 
I don't know. I I feel like maybe that rubbed off on this record at the time. That the sense that well, this band has sort of had their peak, and now they're on the downward slope. I mean, was, was that your feeling at all at that time? Yeah, I mean, it felt like there was an urgency to it, right? I mean, I think um, also because they were still classified as grunge for by a lot of people, even though even though that maybe is not what they were. Um, there was the idea that the, that genre was dying. That genre was on a downhill. Um, slide or at least becoming something else, right? Or at least like starting to sound like something else. And so th- there's an urgency, I think, in Yield that I like, um, especially re-listening to it now and, and being able to take into account where Pearl Jam is, has gone since. There's an urgency I like because you can tell it's the band fighting for a sound that might help them last a little bit longer. Right. Um, and I, you know, and I don't know if that was their mindset in you know, 1997, 1998, but that's what it sounds like now. You know, it sounds like they're trying to um, adjust and, and establish them because, because I think that, uh, you know, I think most bands of, of that era knew, they knew that their, their, their ride was ending soon. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a short trip from like, you know, a couple of bad albums to being like a full on novelty act, you know? Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, well, and like it, in, it's and in '98 too, you know, it, Pearl Jam was already on their own as far as bands of their generation. I mean, you know, Nirvana obviously was no more. Soundgarden had just broken up. Alice in Chains was in limbo as Lane Staley, you know, sort of on the downward slide of his addictions. Um, you know, as far as that original sort of Seattle class of the early '90s, you know, by '98 that was almost all gone. And you really, you you really only had Pearl Jam. And meanwhile, you know you have boy bands, you know coming in. You have rap rock being sort of the new signature sound of of mainstream rock. So you know Pearl Jam still had a big audience, but you know in the context of the times, they were sort of like this passe band already. You know, just a few years removed from being just enormous. Yeah, I mean they had. I think what happened, especially after Yield and like at the or in the early early two thousands, um, is that they had the fans uh, that grew up with them, but they were not generating any new fans. Right? right? They weren't like pulling because all of the like new young fans were, you know, turning towards other types of music. There was just too, I mean, like it's I know that people la- will laugh when we look back on this, and we do now. But I mean, like Limp Bizkit was in Corn. I mean, those bands were uh, kind of like the the stepping, you know, the stepping stone for for the new the new young person who's into to loud music. You know. Yeah, I mean, like, I I remember like being eighteen, nineteen, like in ninety eight or so, and f- for, and for the first time feeling old because Limp Bizkit was so huge, and like that yeah. was the band that thirteen year olds loved, and just being like. I do not get this shit at all, you know. Like, yeah, I mean, and I'm 19, and I already feel like an old man because. It, but you could. But you're right. Like that. The difference between the early 90s and the late 90s, it, it was. It's only a couple of years on the calendar, but in terms of just the shift that happened, certainly in rock music, it was so dramatic. It's dramatic, but I think, and, and I know that maybe a lot of people don't agree, but I think sonically it felt natural. I think it was a right. natural. Like I think the shift from like grunge to rap rock was a. I'm sure I didn't think it then because, like you, I I didn't feel old. I was still kind of young, but I thought I don't understand this shit. You know what I mean? Like I don't understand the biscuit. But I think when you look back at the progression of sound, um, 
like rap rock was a natural progression to, to me. Um, it was it was doing a lot of the same work, right? right? The same instrumentation, the same kind of sludginess. It was just like a bad white rock singer rapping over it. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, and and I think you're totally right. I mean, I think when these things are happening in the moment, they seem random and nonsensical, and then you look back. And it totally makes sense. You can see why things happened the way they did. I think the other big thing, too, was, you know, you talk about Pearl Jam being lumped into the grunge movement and how that was maybe not a totally accurate thing to do. But, you know, one of the cliches about grunge was this thing about, you know, being miserable and talking about how the world was bad and that, you know, you didn't want to be a rock star and all that stuff. And the rap rock bands were a reaction to that. I mean, there was a lot of darkness in those bands. I mean, they, yeah. you know, break stuff and all that kind of stuff. But Fred Durst clearly relished being a rock star. I mean, there was sort of a hair metal aspect to rap rock that was a reaction to the grunge stuff. I mean, people were just tired of sort of the miserable, yeah. you know, the miserable rock stars of the early 90s. So I think in another way, that was another way how Pearl Jam was sort of a band out of time already in 1998. I mean, it was a really kind of weird position for them to be in. Yeah, and I mean, and grunge, of course, was a reaction to hair metal in a lot right. of ways. And so it was like to have those two, uh, to have those two hair metal and grunge kind of fused together and spit out a child of rap of rap rock uh, is wild. And I mean, I think yeah, Eddie Vedder wasn't going to rap. You know what I mean? Eddie Vedder was certainly <laughs> not going to start rapping in the early two thousands. And so I think, um, and so when I when I talk when I think about Yield, I, I think about the fact that like even. I imagine that when they made that record, they were probably unsure of how much their sound was slipping away, you know, because rap rock wasn't massive um, yet in 1997 when they were recording it. Um, it was coming, but it wasn't like it hadn't broken through in the, in the biggest way possible. Um, and so I, I think uh, what I like about Yield is that it is maybe... Uh, the last great album of that for, of that Seattle era, right? right. Like uh, it's like a it's like a archive, you know what I mean? It's like a it's like a golden archive because of that because it's not. Um, and and it's, I mean, of course, Pearl Jam made more records, but I, I think uh, that is the last great one, the last great complete album. Yeah, certainly the end of a golden age, I guess, or, or however you want to describe it. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting way to frame it because it kind of squares with how I was thinking about the record when I was revisiting it recently. Um, because like you, like when the record came out, I thought it was pretty good. I liked it. Okay. But then I put it in a box somewhere and I didn't listen to it for a long time. And then in recent years, I've kind of gone back and realized like, you know, that it's actually like one of the really kind of strong Pearl Jam records. I think it's probably their most underrated record. Although I think among super fans, it's, um, you know, it, it's a favorite. It's really kind of risen in esteem. Actually like, uh, I saw Pearl Jam in 2014 in Milwaukee, and they played this album from beginning to end, and it was like a big deal in Pearl Jam circles that that that, that the band did that. Um, but when I revisited it recently, it, it occurred to me that, in a way, this record yielded. It, it sounds to me like a greatest hits record with all new songs. Like it, it kind of touches on all the different things that Pearl Jam did in the 90s. Like there's the big rock songs, you know, yeah. Given to Fly, Faithful, and Hiding. There's some kind of punky, noisy songs like Do the Evolution and Brain of Jay. And then you have the experimental kind of quirky songs, uh, 
you mentioned Push Me, Pull Me, you know, being a song where that song in a way, it kind of reminds me of like the, you know, the self-consciously weird songs on Vitology, you know, that like in the back half of the record where yeah. there are records, you there's songs you never really listen to, but you kind of appreciate that they're there because it's part of the atmosphere of the album, you know, this kind of letting it all hang out type thing. That's that's the uh, spirit in which I listen to Push Me, Pull Me, although I don't really ever listen to that song. I usually skip it if I listen to Yield. But um, it does sound to me, in retrospect, like a, a, a summation record of the 90s. Like, this is what we did in this decade, and we're kind of putting the capper on it right now with this record. I mean, does that make sense to you, know, to you like when you listen to it? Yeah, it makes sense to me. And I, and I think it's also definitely worth pointing out their comfort, you know, how comfortable they sounded. Right. Um, kind of dancing between the extremes of the record sonically, you know, the different sounds and the different experiments. Um, there's like a lot of value. Well, and I, and I, of course, didn't notice that in 1998, but in revisiting it now, um, you can hear how kind of at ease they sound. Um, because I, I think it's an uneven listen, you know, uh, and I mean that not entirely in a bad way. Um, it's just doing a lot. You know, it's, it's not an even record. It's not just a straightforward rock record only. There's a lot of different sounds mashed up in it, and it's not necessarily structured evenly. And so being able to hear them, like you said, it sounds like compilation. Um, right. And being able to hear them bounce from sound to sound and song to song, and they're so much more more comfortable. And it, 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 I think of it as their like first adult album, right? Their first album is like, fully formed at ease adults um i mean i think that reflects in, in the lyrics as well but but also just in their approach to uh the sound and the structure of it and i think it's important to note too that i think one reason it probably sounds like that is that this was an album it was more of a collaborative album than the last couple pearl jam albums like when this album came out the band talked about how essentially on, on vitality and no code eddie vetter took over the band and he was writing a lot of the songs and he yeah, was, and this one they all did it, yeah? Yeah, all... right. Yeah, like on this album, they actually brought in demos into the studio that, you know, it was more kind of fleshed out songs, whereas on the previous two records, it was more kind of fragments that Eddie Vedder would sort of be the general on and, you know, kind of spearhead the completion of those. Whereas these, like, you know, Jeff Ament was bringing in, I think he actually wrote uh, the lyrics to uh, the song uh, Low Light. And like wrote like so he so he was actually writing lyrics and he wrote the music so it was kind of like a complete song that Eddie Vedder would then uh, sing in the studio so I think that also you know I think that's what accounts for maybe that more mature sound more it's a little more I, one word that the band themselves used when they did interviews at the time was professional you know this is yeah. more of a professional sounding album which is kind of a double edged classif- classification maybe some people might look at that as being you know, saying that's more sterile or something, but uh, I think by and large, um, it's a good thing on this record, that professionalism. And I I feel like they've gotten really comfortable, um, working with Brendan O'Brien. Right. Um, because I think this was maybe, I don't, off the top of my head, I'm going to, I think this was their fourth go with him. Um, third or fourth. Uh, it was their fourth. Yeah. I think versus was the first Brendan O'Brien. Yeah. And I mean, now he's like locked in with them. You know, he's just their producer. But I think that um, this was the first album that felt like they trusted him, right? I, for me, um, which doesn't mean others were bad. But I, I think there's a sound 
um, I, I talk a lot about how you can tell a band uh, trust their producer by what they allow uh, or what what the sound tells you they've allowed. You're right. Um, and and this is this is the album where I feel like they really they really started trusting him. And I don't think it's their cleanest produced. I don't think it's the cleanest work he's done with them. I think that um, you know some of the later stuff is cleaner, um, but this is the album that feels like it was the most challenging for him to produce with them. Uh, and it, it sounds like they gave in and entrusted him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, I, as you were talking, I was just thinking about the records that that Brendan O'Brien did with Stone Temple Pilots in the 90s and comparing yep. those to the Pearl Jam records because the Stone Temple Pilots ones are like these very lush, big-sounding arena rock albums and sort of unabashed and unapologetic about it. Whereas with Pearl Jam, there was always this sort of tension between we are an arena rock band, but we also love Fugazi. So we want right. <laughs> we want to sound like a punk band while also being this big arena band. And there's that tension where songs sometimes sound shittier than they probably need to, you know, but there was some sort of feeling that we need to make this sound a little grittier or worse because there's integrity in that. And maybe they were starting to let go with, of that a little bit more on yield. Yeah, and I, and I think it's always good um, with Brendan O'Brien, particularly who's just produced like a billion things for decades, um, to kind of, like you said, listen to and put him in, listen to his stuff with Pearl Jam and then put him in context with other bands he's worked with. Um, because it feels like with a lot of stuff he's done, um, he is making something sound larger. Um, and with Pearl Jam, it, it often feels like he's, uh, scaling back. Right. And, and, and kind of, you know, giving into, uh, giving into the band's band's wishes to stay true to whatever uh, punk roots they might have. Yeah, you, know, you know, looking back on you know bands from that era, where do you put Pearl Jam in terms of the pantheon? Like, do you put them towards the top of the best bands, or where do they place for you? Just in the '90s in general. Yeah, or just bands from that era, you know, that okay. have continued, you know, I mean, because like Radiohead, for instance, has obviously continued to make records coming out of the right. 90s, and there's been other bands. Um, but like, do you have any feelings on that, like as far as like how Pearl Jam, you know, kind of ranks among their class? I think they had to rank high, right? I mean, I, I think they have to be in the, I don't know, number, maybe top 10-ish because of their, yeah, they're, okay, so they haven't sold as many records, right? Um, I think a thing that Radiohead's been able to do that a lot of bands haven't is maintain uh, this really consistent fan base that has never left them and also will always buy their records. Right. Right. That is not the same for Pearl Jam. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, it, they got what Radiohead did that Pearl, they kind of like nestled into and kept reinventing the wheel in a genre that didn't get bought out by another genre. Right. Right. Um, you know, Pearl Jam didn't sell after the 90s. They didn't sell as well because they just, you know, uh, it was the gentrification of genre uh, right. that hurt them the most. But the, the albums were consistent up until the last one, the 2013. Uh, yeah, Lightning you know, Bolt. Lightning Bolt. Yeah. I mean, that's a consistent, that's a good record. Um, it just didn't sell. Right. And so, and the Pearl Jam also still puts on a great show. Right. Um, still is 
they're not a novelty band yet, which I think at the end of the '90s, a lot of people thought they would be. They're not. They're not the Vegas act, you know. Well, and I think another transition that happened for Pearl Jam after Yield was that they became more of a touring band than a studio band. Not to say that they didn't continue to make records or write good songs, but I think you do see a shift into a mode where, you know, they're not a jam band. Um, you know, they're not the Grateful Dead, but they do seem to operate more like that than they do the sort of conventional rock band that puts out a record and then tours on it for two years and then goes and makes a record and tours on it. Um, like, I really think that the way that they've sort of sustained themselves in the wake of Yield is by being a great live band. And that's why, as you say, you know, they don't sell a ton of records anymore, but they can still play uh, multiple nights at Wrigley Field and sell out or, or, you know, play stadiums and still, you know, do really well. Because, I mean, part of that is because, you know, they were a band in the 90s that had the benefit of the record industry at that time, and they had a lot of hits on their early albums that people still know. So that builds a good foundation if you want to be a stadium band. But they've also kind of concentrated on being a live band and really sort of honing that and building reputation for that. I mean, I think 98 was their first sort of extensive tour in several years at that point because, you know, they'd been battling Ticketmaster and, you know, that kind of derailed them for a while. But it seems like after 98, they really kind of recommitted themselves to being a live band, and that's how they've kind of made their way over the last 20 years. I mean, does that... Yeah. I mean, have you, have you ever seen Pearl Jam, by the way? I have. I've seen them five times. Oh, wow. Wait, um, like, when did you have, see them? I've seen them in Chicago, in Wrigley. Uh, did you see them uh, this most recent, in 16? No, no, no. I saw them... Maybe three years ago. Were you at the show that uh, where it rained and like? Yeah, I was at that show too. Really, <laughs> it was awful, but great. <laughs> um, I was I lucky actually... because I was so far back that I was undercover and I didn't have to get up. Like the people that had the good seats were the most inconvenienced because they had to go into the concourse area for three hours and before they could go back on the field. But I could just sit in my seat and drink old style for like three hours. <laughs> that, that's what I did. <laughs> I was deeply inconvenienced by the rain, but also I had been at a show um, that same. I went to see My Morning Jacket in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from, and it, it rained at that show too. So it was a very thing that I was just used to at the time. I mean, I'm from you know, I'm from the Midwest, and so I'm just always prepared for rain <laughs> ruining a time that I'm having outdoors. Right. Um, but I, I've seen them live about five times. I've seen them live five times, and they're, they're um, what I think their catalog in their on stage chops allows for is uh, a world in which I can see them five times and know that I'm getting a different show every time, you right. know? Right. Um, which I, I don't know if, um, you know, I, I always think about um, these, these nineties bands that are, that are still around and there aren't a ton of them um, and how they had just such a, and I don't know if they knew they were doing it at a time at the time in the nineties, but they were just so, good at building a catalog right mm -hmm. building a catalog of songs that sound good live and so i, I think there are like a, a lot of bands now um that aren't as invested in that and that aren't as invested in um building a good catalog of songs that they can play live that sound good live that people also know and love um 
you know, it's it's harder because I, I know that radio is different and people are taking in music differently than they were in, say, you know, 1996 and 97, 98. Um, but where Pearl Jam was able to do that, a lot of those bands... Uh, in the 90s did, and, and, and Pearl Jam is one of the, the last great ones standing, is that they, they built just this great catalog of songs that their fans could sing along to. Right. And then they played the hell out of them live, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. You know, that point about building not just a great catalog, but of songs that can be played live. Um, because I, I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, as much as I like Pearl Jam albums, and I like most of them, and I love some of them, um, I would rather hear any Pearl Jam song played live than on the record. I think almost across the board, their music always sounds better like on bootlegs than it does on the records. Yeah, I, I think that's generally true. I think like, you know, I still love listening to 10 front to back, but if I could see him play it front to back, I would run out in the heartbeat and do that instead. <laughs> right. Another thing I think that's important to talk about from this era is uh, the hiring of Matt Cameron, which happened after Yield was re- was recorded uh, the, the band recorded Yield with Jack Irons, who was their drummer yeah. from 94 to 98, but then he quit uh, right as they were about to start touring. And then Matt Cameron was hired, uh, of course, former drummer of Soundgarden, I guess now the current drummer of Soundgarden, because Soundgarden got back together. But at the time, he didn't have a gig. So he joins Pearl Jam, and at the time, it's sort of perceived that this is like a stopgap, that he'll just sort of sub until they find someone permanent. And then here we are, 19 years later, he's still the guy. He's the longest tenured drummer in Pearl Jam history. And um, I was wondering, like, do you, like, what is your stance on Pearl Jam drummers? Because, you know, they've had about five different drummers. Do you have a favorite drummer? And Um, if so, why? I think, uh, they've had a ton. Um, I mean, let me just briefly run down the list here. For people Matt who don't Cameron know, briefly, okay, because right. Matt Cameron was at the beginning. He played on, uh, I think he played on the Mama San demo, the famous demo yeah. that they sent to Eddie Vedder. And then this guy Dave Krusen played on the very 10. very beginning. Yeah, very very beginning. He played on ten, and then he left. And then there was this guy named Matt Chamberlain, who was in the band briefly. Um, I think he was only, I think he was there for like less than a year. Then it's yeah. Dave Abruzzese, who yeah. I, I probably butchered his name, but he was. This guy, he was in the band from 91 to 94, so he plays on Versus and Vitology. But him and Eddie Vedder don't get along, so he gets fired. And then Jack Irons is in there. He Jack Irons plays on Yield, and he played on No Code, I guess, as well. And then Matt Cameron comes in, and he's been in for 19 years. So that is the quick history of Pearl Jam drummers. Because the reason I ask this is, it, I ask this because I have a stance <laughs> on Pearl Jam drummers. I'm just wondering, like... like because basically, like I, I have some attachment to a bruise, a bruise. I'm just going to call him Dave. Yeah, I, I can't say his last name. It's very yeah, uh, because he he's was my, he's my big one. Because he was sort of like the you know he didn't play on ten, but he's the guy I associate being the classic lineup drummer. And yeah, he's a very '90s looking guy. He's got the long hair. He's got the soul patch. He kind of had like a a slight Chili Peppers like way to his drum playing. I mean. That was like as funky as Pearl Jam ever got, and you know, to be like the Chili Peppers, that's not necessarily a good thing. But I don't know. Like at the time, it worked. For them, um, it worked on verses. It worked on. I think it worked for them on verses, right? I think like. Oh yeah. Uh, which he played on, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of those songs 
had a Chili Peppers vibe that worked for that worked for you know, um, especially like Go. Right. It felt very. Uh, yeah. Well, that song I, Rats. So, I always think of like Rats as being kind of semi yeah. Chili Peppers sounding. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, he's he's my favorite drummer, but I also. Um, yeah, didn't he? I don't remember like what his main problem was. I thought didn't he have an issue with the Ticketmaster boycott or no? I don't remember. Well, I, um, I I read the you know Kim Neely wrote a book about Pearl Jam uh, called Five Against One, and there's a story in, in that book. It's sort of alleged that like Dave A was like the the guy who was most sort of amenable to the rock star lifestyle. So like he bought like a big fancy car when they got famous, and you know he he was more of like a rock dude. And Eddie Vedder wasn't comfortable having a guy like that in the band. I think he was right. also friends with Jack Irons already and was probably wanting to get him in, into the band anyway. Um, so it seems like it was sort of like a, like a philosophical difference in whether you should be happy to be a rock star. I mean, at least that's the story that's been told, um, you know, in books and such. So... Yeah, I always feel it, it. it's a shame, too, because, you know, he's had kind of a rough life. I mean, there was a story, I think, last year that he was involved in some sort of arrest or something. I, I shouldn't go into it because I don't know all the details, but he's also not going to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and that's wild. What's weird is that, you know, by the way, Matt Cameron, great drummer. I mean, I love Matt Cameron. No diss to him at all. I still associate him more with Soundgarden, though, than Pearl Jam. There's like a bias that I have in my mind. Where yeah. he he still seems like the new guy, but Matt Cameron's going to get in, and then Dave Krusen is getting in, I guess because he played yeah. on ten, but yeah, no other drummers. But Jack Irons isn't getting in, and Dave Abruzzese is 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 a is also not getting in. He's not getting but, in either. I, I think that is more startling to me than Irons. I also don't know how that works. I know that there's been issues before with bands getting in the Rock and the Hall of Fame that have like that have had massive lineup changes where like one or two people get left out, and I never know how that works. I mean, I understand why Matt Cameron is getting in. He deserves to be in. He's been in the band the longest. But the cruising thing is a little weird that he would be the other drummer. But, again, I, I assume that's because he played on 10. And that, in you know, like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they they, uh, they induct you 25 years after your first uh, yeah. record. The first, so he's, the, he's in that, he's the eligible, in the year eligibility. I guess, I mean... I have to assume that Eddie Vedder has something to do with this. I'm sure he's like, Dave is not getting in. There's no way he's yeah. getting in. I'm not going to show up if he gets in. And you know, if he, or if Eddie or you know the opposite, if Eddie Vedder said, "Put Dave in, or I don't come," then they would probably put him in. And, and I imagine the Rock Hall is really amenable to that kind of stuff because they've had so many issues, so many awkward moments, like when Blondie got inducted, um, and there was that awkward on stage moment with some of the ex members. You know, and so I think. I'm sure the Rock Hall is like, gosh, we just really want to have a night where we can get through this thing <laughs> without any ex-members of a band getting into a fight with other ex-members of a, you know. Right. Um, and, and But still, it feels, uh, when I read that he wasn't getting in the Rock Hall of Fame, I was bummed out because he is my favorite Pearl Jam drummer. He's the one that uh, I most associate with the band's like, funkiest moments right. um, on, on the albums I loved. You know, well, you know, we are both in the music press. Maybe we should be starting like a movement to get Dave into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We should be ready to take Dave on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, I mean, because this is the most important issue in the world right now, obviously. So, you yeah. know, we should be coordinating an online campaign 
with think pieces every day about how funky he played on verses and that deserves to be memorialized in some way. Um, but, uh, yeah, sorry, Dave, you, 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 you make our hall of fame, you know, close one day, you know, in, in the sort of Pearl Jam fan hall of fame, you're, you're a first ballot hall of famer. And maybe you'll actually, maybe someone will at least pay your ticket to go see the Pearl Jam display in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That, and so you can get in the Hall of Fame that way anyway. Um, yeah, I hope he still has like Pearl Jam money. I hope he still has some kind of like royalty situation going on. I mean, I, I think you get performance royalties yeah. uh, as a drummer. And he, uh, I think he even has some co-writes from that time. So he would be getting some money. You know, those are the two biggest Pearl Jam albums uh, yeah, he definitely wrote a couple songs on verses for sure. Right, and his, I mean his drumming. I mean he, he had a you know, it was a big beat, you know, strong. You know, I just think of like Last Exit from Vitology. Yeah. That's that's Dave playing on that. Sounds great. That's the drums make that song. Yeah, no doubt. Come on, Eddie, let him in. <laughs> it's been twenty years. Get over it. Um, Hanif, this has been great. I love uh, talking yield with you. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was, uh, it was good to revisit that album and, and kind of dive back in. Great. Well, hey, thanks again, man. Take care. All right. Bye. All right. That was me and Hanif Wils Abdurraqib talking about Yield. That was a good conversation. You know, I keep sort of changing my list of favorite Pearl Jam records. I don't know if Yield would be in my top three, but it would be just like outside of my top three. It's really, it's really quite strong. Um, so that is it for this episode we still have two more episodes left to go they're both going to go up next week I'm excited for you guys to hear those uh, we're going to be talking about the less heralded Pearl Jam records especially those early 2000s ones I really want people to revisit those records Benoral and Riot Act I think there's a lot of good music on there that has been sort of overlooked so it'll be fun digging into those as well as the later records I actually like Lightning Bolt a lot. I think Lightning Bolt's actually a pretty strong record. Backspacer, I think, has a lot of good moments, too. The Avocado record, I'm not so high on, but we'll get to that next week. (laughs) So, guys, thanks again for listening. It's been great digging into Pearl Jam with you guys and uh, look forward to doing doing more of it very soon. Take care. Bye.